killings of Palestinian children have become the norm as Israeli forces become increasingly empowered to use intentional lethal force. Mohammed Tamimi is exactly that. He's two years old. He was on his way to visit family with his father, and they were sitting in a parked car outside of their home in Nabi Saleh journalist attempting to film the murder of this two-year-old, and he was shot in the hand. This is a war crime with no consequence. Hamid is the 27th Palestinian child who was killed by the apartheid state in the first half of this year. Student Fatima Mohammed giving a commencement speech. The New York Times headline, she attacked Israel and the NYPD. It made her law school a target. Speech was pre-approved in written form and audio recording. The CUNY School of Law Jewish Law Students Association stands in solidarity. Tremendous power imbalance between a law student and a nuclear power. I take all of my character recommendations from former cops. Hello and welcome to episode 96 of the Palestine Pod, the weekly podcast where we break down the latest headlines dealing with Palestine from all over the world and bring you stories, commentary, and interviews with the aim of supporting the Palestinian struggle for decolonization, justice, and equal rights. I'm one of your hosts, Lara E. You might know me from Instagram as at Gaz and Girl, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mikey B. What's up, y'all? Mikey B on TikTok, Michael Scherzer on Instagram. And you can call me Mikey Intifada if you weaponized a military budget against a CUNY law graduate. Before we get into today's episode, please like, comment, and subscribe if you hang out with us on YouTube. If you're listening on a podcast app, subscribe and leave a review. As always, you can find our full episodes and sources on palestinepod.com. And if you want to get involved in the conversation, reach out to us at palestinepod at gmail.com and give us a follow on Instagram at the palestinepod. Find us also on Patreon, where you get early access to the Palestine Pod episodes and additional podcasts per week. It's called the Patreon Pod. It's a little more laid back. We talk Palestine, politics, pop culture, and get a little more personal. We're also hosting our monthly Zoom happy hours with our Patreon subscribers only. So really exciting stuff. Check us out on patreon.com slash palestinepod. Many of you have been following the story of Yemeni American student Fatima Mohammed of the CUNY University School of Law, who gave a speech at her commencement ceremony mentioning the Palestinian liberation struggle and highlighting the school's support of Palestinian activism. The speech was not published on YouTube until a number of Palestinian activist organizations mobilized, Wall Palestine being one of them, to get the speeches published. They were the only, it was Nardine's speech last year and Fatima's speech this year that were missing from the page of CUNY School of Law. It was, it was the only two videos missing from the catalog. They got the, the full speeches published to the public. Speech was removed from the YouTube page hours after the graduation, and then a public outcry and campaign led to it being put back online. And once it was put back online, all hell broke loose and the backlash started. Ted Cruz even weighed in on the situation referring to... Hey, but when Ted Cruz weighs in on something, it is heavy. <laughs> there was a huge backlash from Zionists in the US. And I don't care about that. And we're not going to give space to that. But I do think it's important to actually quote Fatima. Let's hear from what she said. And let's amplify her voice in that moment. She said, Israel continues to indiscriminately rain bullets and bombs on worshipers. That's a fact murdering the old, the young, attacking even funerals and graveyards as it encourages lynch mobs to target Palestinian homes and businesses. Our silence is no longer acceptable. She also said Palestine can no longer be the exception to our pursuit of justice. Now, everything that she has mentioned in her speech refers to incidents which 
just in this last year alone, we can pull examples from mainstream media publications. Upwards of 20-some children have been killed in 2023 alone by the apartheid state, attacking funerals. They attacked the funeral of Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akhla, and it's on video, and you can see occupation attacking those holding up her casket, attacking graveyards and desecrating Palestinian gravestones. We have we have seen that. It's reported. Encouraging lynch mobs to target Palestinian homes and businesses. It's on video. It happens regularly all the time. Her making a reference to Palestine being an exception to the pursuit of justice merely echoes what activists and scholars and commentators have been saying in recent years, that there is this Palestine exception to progressive politics. In fact, Mark Lamont Hill and Mitchell Plitnick wrote a book called Except for Palestine, The Limits of Progressive Politics. Everything that she referenced in her speech refers to recorded events that have taken place in recent years. She was attacked by the CUNY Board of Trustees, and they issued a state condemning her so-called hateful rhetoric at the CUNY Law School graduation. And it says, to be clear, this statement was issued on behalf of the Board of Trustees, as the title states, and reflects the opinions of the board. They were influenced by Zionists to put out a statement that demonizes this budding law school graduate who is a Yemeni American who has shown solidarity with Palestine. And they were joined by a number of groups and organizations, the New York Post, even Mayor Eric Adams had a statement, former police officer who has now approved one of the largest budgets for the New York Police Department, which may we remind you has dozens of offices overseas. She's making all the right enemies. You also support the effort. Stand with her against these racist attacks. Go to Wall Palestine for action items and petitions you can sign to support her cause. Oh, and I also have a a statement from the JLSA, the Jewish Law School Students Association at CUNY. And I'd love to read that. Yeah, please do. The people who are a part of the JLSA are supporting Fatima. The CUNY School of Law Jewish Law Students Association stands in solidarity with our friend and classmate Fatima, who is currently being targeted by a racist hate campaign from external organizations after delivering a commencement speech that addressed the struggle for Palestinian freedom. Our class, including its members in the Jewish Law Students Association, proudly chose Fatima as CUNY Law's commencement speaker. For years, Zionist organizations have been enacting targeted harassment campaigns against Palestinian and Muslim law students at the CUNY School of Law. As a public interest focused law school, we have a duty to stand with Palestinians against Zionist oppression, as Fatima has done. In her commencement speech, Fatima describes the unique nature of CUNY law and the values it embodies that brought many students to our school. She explains, we join this institution to be equipped with the necessary legal skills to protect our communities, to protect the organizers fighting endlessly day in and day out with no accolades, no cameras, no votes, no PhD grants, working to lift the facade of legal neutrality and confront the systems of oppression that rend violence on them. Speaking out against oppression is one of the skills we cultivate. 
and we aim to apply our principles consistently. As Fatima reminds us, Palestine can no longer be the exception to our pursuit of justice. We as Jewish students at CUNY Law oppose and condemn the racist organizations like Canary Mission who are spreading disgusting lies about our friends. The organizations currently attacking Fatima and the rest of CUNY's law student body with absurd and false claims of anti-Semitism are doing so against the wishes of the majority of CUNY Law's Jewish students who wholeheartedly stand with Fatima and have been grateful to have her as our classmate throughout law school. As Jewish students attending an institution structured around social justice, we denounce both the murder and dispossession enacted in our name through the Zionist project and the harassment and lies that Zionist organizations are using to punish Fatima for her bravery and commitment to Palestinian freedom. In her commencement speech, Fatima rightly condemned that Israel continues to indiscriminately reign bullets and bombs on worshipers, murdering the old, the young, attacking even funerals and graveyards. It encourages lynch mobs to target Palestinian homes and businesses as it imprisons its children, as it continues its project of settler colonialism, expelling Palestinians from their homes, carrying out the ongoing Nakba. It is disingenuous to characterize these factual descriptions as anti-Semitic when they describe the conditions of Palestinian life. We call on CUNY law to listen to, support, and defend its student body. Our condemnation of Zionism is based on outrage at the way it has harmed and continues to harm Palestinians. As long as Zionism has existed, there have been Jewish people fighting against its racist and imperialist logic. To equate anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism is to erase the history of Jewish anti-Zionism throughout the world and at CUNY Law. If CUNY Law wants to show it cares for its Jewish students, it can do so by showing it cares for Fatima. We are endlessly grateful for Fatima's courage, courageous work, and her inspiring message to CUNY Law's class of 2023. Let us remember, as Fatima said in her speech, that just this week, Gaza has been bombed with the world watching that daily black and brown men are being murdered by the state at Rikers, that there are Palestinian political prisoners like the Holy Land Five in US prisons, that there are refugees at the Southern border still locked up, that yesterday, May 11th, 2023, marked one year since the murder of US Palestinian journalist Shireen Abu Akla, and that the murder of black men, like the murder of Jordan Neely by a white man on the MTA, is being dignified by politicians like Eric Adams. We leave our classes and we leave this school to a world that so desperately needs us to stand alongside those who have given up for the sake of liberation far more than we could imagine. We implore CUNY Law to stand alongside its students and alumni and to act in alignment with its mission and mandate by supporting Fatima and denouncing the racist lies being spread about her. Signed, CUNY Jewish Law Students Association and a number of other organizations. CUNY Law Students for Justice in Palestine, CUNY Law Outlaws, CUNY Law Indigenous Americans and Law Student Advocates, Student Government, etc. I love to see that. I love to see the Jewish Law Students Association stepping up and putting out this statement referring to words like the Nekba, talking about 
how everything in her statement is factual and is rooted in factual events that the public is not willing to grapple with, speaking about how their opposition to Zionism is rooted in the immensely disastrous consequences that the implementation of the Zionist project has had on Palestinians. They have hit all the major points in their statement. And I really encourage people to really take a look at it because it really says something when her peers are standing with her because they know her and they know what she stands for and they know what the struggle stands for because they're, they are all united in principle. And then you have people who are united just by APAC money and political interests. And those people are not willing to grapple with the facts or not willing to grapple with the consequences on Palestinian rights that Zionism brings. And so all they can do is name call, try to discredit, paint with a broad brush and just attack somebody's integrity and hope that somebody who is reading the story is not going to dig a little deeper to understand where the truth actually is. I don't know about you, but I take all of my character. Um... It's character assassination. No, you take I take all of your character. I take all of my character recommendations. Yeah. I take all of my character recommendations from former cops and mayors. And Ted Cruz. <laughs> yeah. And Ted Cruz. Those are the people who I look to for moral guidance. We here support her and wish her all the best. And her apparently reported that speech was pre-approved in written form and audio recording. And so it's especially disingenuous now for the university to take a step back and to distance themselves from her and to essentially outright condemn her because they knew exactly what she was going to say. And they know also the position of their student body. It's a it's a really progressive university where people give a shit about things happening in this world. Yeah, so, but they didn't know that daddy would have a problem with it. Right. Is, is it surprising to anyone? Like this is, you know, this is a university where historically and in contemporary news, you know, people like Nardine and others and the student groups have been really insistent on supporting Palestinian liberation. And the faculty know who the students are. It's like kind of a silly, desperate attempt by the Zionist lobby to maintain relevancy to where they went to the board of trustees, which is their literal only access to CUNY. Yeah. And they were like, hey, we need you to put out a statement because there's too much positive PR happening for Palestine right now. Yep. We need yep. you to counterbalance and attack the character of the individual who you and the student body approved as the speaker. Exactly. And then the board of trustees was like, whatever you say, that sounds good. You know what I mean? Whatever you, you just write us this statement. We'll just forward it. We don't even need to read it. And <laughs> right. so they just copy pasted a, a text probably from some Zionist lobbyist and that was their official statement. And then they doubled down on it, even after like community support for Fatima was through the roof. Like it just shows the so-called unflinching nature, right, of the ties or the bond, the unbreakable bond between like Zionist organizations that are, you know, local to New York and also all over the United States and pretty much every major institution, like educational institution 
you know, in this hemisphere. I have to talk also about the New York Times headline about this because really? yeah. it just is a perfect example of the fragility of the apartheid state. She is a law student. She is a minority law student wearing a hijab, standing up, giving a commencement speech to her peers at a law school in America. And the New York Times headline about this subject was, she attacked Israel and the NYPD. It made her law school a target. And the subheadline is, a student gave a commencement address at the famously progressive CUNY Law School. Two weeks later, she was attacked by the tabloids and the mayor, and the school disavowed her speech. The first thing that they thought was relevant to say was, she attacked Israel. On the one hand, we're talking about the person who I just described. And on the other hand, we're talking about a nuclear power. And it just goes to show how fragile the apartheid state is, that literally with words exposing its crimes, exposing its actions, it can see and it perceives that mere act of speaking truth to power as an insane threat that makes a nuclear power bow down. What is the attack? What is this attack? She attacked Israel. If Israel's yeah. a nuclear power, Israel should be able to withstand verbal critique. Should it not? If Israel is a democracy, it should be able to stand, withstand verbal critique of its actions, especially no, when those actions result in, 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 in the murder of civilians. Democracies often mobilize the mayor of other cities and countries. It's, it happens all the time. It happens all the time. Yeah. 100%. Palestine Legal tweeted, shame on the New York Times for this misleading and dangerous headline and for this article's careless victim blaming and demands for benevolent censorship. All right, we should move on to another story. All right, great. Uh, speaking of, what was I going to say? I don't know, but that transition was as smooth <laughs> as could be. <laughs> I was going to say. You ever have Alzheimer's in the middle of a transition? <laughs> I don't know. I, I I had a great transition lined up to go to Brussels. And You're speaking just going to have to ask me about it. Speaking of advocacy, how was your trip to Brussels? Thank you, Michael. Thank you for that seamless transition. Yeah. Uh, hey, I'm just over might... here throwing softballs to you. <laughs> Thank you. So last week, I took a couple of days to go to Brussels to meet Adnan, our bestie and pod alum, who was visiting the European Parliament with a group of other Palestinian activists from on the ground, from occupied East Jerusalem, and speaking to members of the European Parliament and also members of the Belgian Parliament about their experience living under occupation, living under the control and domination of an apartheid state. Adnan asked me to join and he said, come give the diaspora perspective because we're all from on the ground, but we would love to have somebody who can speak to what the diaspora is going through. So I went. It was a very interesting, very packed two days of events. We basically met with a member of parliament every hour, and we had meetings all day long. They stayed for four days. I was there for two of those days. And the takeaway was very mixed. And I think what was interesting was we met with a lot of people who are self-described allies of the Palestinian cause. But when you sit down with a self-described ally of the Palestinian cause in a context where the person is a policymaker, 
that can mean a lot of things, right? So one of the first meetings that I attended was with an MEP who told us, you know, if you guys can just get that that state, if you can just get the the two-state solution to happen, I know you'd only have 22% of Palestine, but that's still pretty good, right? And this is like a verbatim quote. She's saying this to a group of Palestinians who literally just arrived from Palestine and live every single day under occupation apartheid. And it was very degrading in a way. It was very like, minimizing their struggle and their pain and their lived experience. And so that was like, that was one of them, right? There were others who, who, who said to us, yeah, you know, we understand the situation, but unfortunately there's nothing we can do about it because we're in a minority here and we don't have a majority. So we can't get anything done on the issues that we care about. So all we can do is vote and it doesn't produce any results. And that's just the nature of politics. So there was this air of like defeatism about also the Palestinian cause. We know your cause is just, we know you're going through hell. We know that Israel's, you know, doing terrible things to you, but there's nothing that we can do, Right. There were others who actually told the group that maybe what we should spend time doing is reach out to Israelis, to voters, to try to influence their political decisions that are bringing deadly consequences to Palestinians. And Adnan made an excellent point, which is that Israelis are not some, quote, random spectators of a political scene. They are the scene. The vast majority of them serve in the occupation forces, and they are the human embodiment of the Israeli settler colonial project. Adnan wrote, still, there is this trope that the Israeli side is not always informed or simply unaware, and that it's the Palestinian responsibility to educate the colonizers. He said, would those politicians ask Ukrainians to educate Russians about Putin's policies? I doubt that. And on that point, all of Brussels was a Zelensky theme park. His photo was everywhere. When you step out of parliament, it is this enormous billboard. It is like a mega billboard. I've never seen a billboard so big. And it's just Zelensky with his olive green t-shirt, dressed in military garb, but not actually in combat, but always prepared and like shaking the hands of like an ambiguous civilian. They're, they just love him. It sounds like military propaganda photo if I ever heard of one. Honestly, it was such a weird vibe because I was like, we are living propaganda. We're going to see like in history, we're going to look back on this and be like, remember when there was all that hey, weird Ukraine propaganda? Little guy on a big billboard? Where have we seen that before? The best was the caption on the billboard. I took a picture of this and I shared it with my followers. The caption Was it was in German? No, the caption was oh, okay. something super. I, I got it. It was a joke, right? Yeah. Uh, it yeah, a joke. So it was a joke the about caption, Nazis because the, they're Nazis. <laughs> the caption uh -huh. was something really weird, right? The caption was defending democracy, colon. We will stand by Ukraine for as long as it takes. Oh, I hate that they had to drag grammar into that sentence. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, grammar does not want to be associated with Nazism. <laughs> No, 100%. Oh, my God. Maybe another, a semicolon. Another baffling comment that we got from so-called policymakers that were our allies was, I didn't realize that there were Palestinian Christians. You guys should really tell people that Palestinian Christians are being oppressed also. 
Yeah, he's like, listen, people don't care about Muslims. Give up, okay? But really work that Christian angle, okay? If you lean into Christianity, I feel Dude, like you got a shot. They said it to our face, and Hilarious. half the group were half the group were Palestinian Christians. I am literally giving you actual statements made by people who work either at the European Parliament or at the Belgian Parliament. It was insane. The half the group was Palestinian Christian, half the group was Palestinian Muslim. And then it created this dynamic where the Palestinian Christians were like, yeah, so you think if we just told everyone that we were being murdered, you know, like Shreen Abu Akhla, like how she was murdered and like then nothing happened and there was like no justice. Like you think that would help? There was also this, not only is it racist to have to like play the Christian card, but also there's this unwillingness to deal with the reality. And the reality is that when Israel kills Palestinian Christians, nobody fucking cares. Again. Yeah, they're like, hey, we know you guys are being murdered, but if you could just do outreach about it, that'd be great. If you could just like do a little TED talk, maybe people would hear you. Yeah. It's like, mm, I don't know. Maybe you could just stop voting for their weapons to be sent there. That might be the easier thing, you know? It, wouldn't it be easier if they didn't have weapons? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, wouldn't it be easier to do outreach if there wasn't a gun pointed at you? Hey. It seems like their suggestion sort of necessitates our suggestion. Absolutely. They're it's, like, first, no, 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 no. First you do the outreach, okay? Then you stop the genocide. Like, dog, no. you. <laughs> Germany you was not re-educated during the 40s. You know what I mean? Like, it took some time. Even still today, they are not doing great, okay? A lot of them say they're the sons and daughters of that short man who was on billboards. We will be genocided if we all we do is outreach. Right. Like the genocide will be complete. Then we we asked many of the policymakers about apartheid. I kept bringing up to them growing consensus that Israel's guilty of the crime of apartheid. And I referred to the just plethora of reports by mainstream human rights organizations that have made this conclusion after deep, thorough analysis of the facts. And what's interesting is that none of them, with the exception of one, seemed to want to touch the apartheid word. And I said, doesn't it mean anything for you that there's this growing consensus in organizations that, you know, are palatable, like Amnesty International Human Rights Watch? Of course, Palestinians have been saying this forever, but, you know, the Palestinian voice, because of the anti-Palestinian racism, is never believed about their own lived experience, even though they're the ones going through it. So now that all these white people are saying it, doesn't that add any sort of credibility to the claim for, from your perspective? Not even. They didn't want to touch it. They said it was too controversial. They said it was very, a very scary, you know, word, don't want to go there. You don't have to. Let's not classify it, we were told. We were told that you can say that what Israel's doing is bad without having to categorize it or judge it as apartheid. And I said, but actually, international law requires us to judge it as apartheid because it's literally a war crime and a crime against humanity. So we have to actually make the the qualification we have to actually engage in that analysis because that's literally the point if they're guilty of that 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 triggers consequences from the perspective of international law which is the only language that they also understand they're so trapped in this in this lingo of international law that they were all so horrified to say well what do you guys believe the solution is and when we said one state where everyone has rights they couldn't even stomach that right they're still very much trapped in the two state framework they're like fuck boy politicians where they're like ah oh, we just don't really like labels you know like 
what if we just like did it by feel you know like what if what if you just like know that i'm committed to you because like we say so but then like all my actions go against that and you feel like you're being gaslit by like an international community how's that for you dog thanks for coming thanks for coming <laughs> thanks for thanks for coming and not coming <laughs> you know what i mean i love that i love that Fuck my balls. I, love <laughs> I love that we met one amazing belgian politician who who was very clear he said this is absolutely apartheid he said this is 75 years of an ongoing nekba and when he said that i said to him thank you thank you for being the only politician that we met thus far who has referred to the the, the situation on the ground as 75 plus years of an ongoing nekba for for correctly framing our lived experience as palestinians and how important that is and how that is a tremendous sign of respect and validation for people who have been suffering for 75 years. And yet yeah. whose who's suffering is not even believed, even though it's happening in front of everybody's eyes and is being recorded and projected and, and broadcasted. Yet people still engage in this. But you, know, you should just talk to them, right? Just, you know, tell them, tell them to stop oppressing you. Hey, you know who's super receptive to criticism and feedback is uh, snipers. Yeah. They're like, oh, I didn't even hear them. I was about to couple hundred yards away. And the thing about that is that that is happening every day. You know, we're there in the halls of a major governmental institution trying to advocate for our rights. And we're being given tips by people who don't even realize that the people who are in front of them are living a situation that they themselves could never even live under. They wouldn't be able to handle it. Yeah, I know you don't have shoes, but uh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Oh, that? Oh, that is a whole situation. One of the individuals who came with us literally had his shoes taken from him at the airport in Tel Aviv by an occupation officer who told him that he had to take his shoes for security reasons and provided him with a document in Hebrew that he was to present to whatever border control whenever he, when he arrived in Europe. And that document said that he asked the soldier to take his shoes, basically absolving the soldier of any liability or responsibility for why this man has no shoes. Because, you know, it doesn't make sense. Like this, the thing is, the Zionist antics don't make sense in the world. They're not consistent with like human behavior, right? So the fact that this man shows up in Europe, gets off a plane and has no shoes is going to like get people to be like, why does he have no shoes? So the Zionist officer was like, here's a piece of paper you can give to explain why you have no shoes. And it literally says that our colleague asked for his shoes to be taken. Which is a common request. Who among us has not been going on an international trip and thought, what do I need shoes for? It would be better when landing in Brussels to really just get my feet on the ground. No separation <laughs> between me and this European city. I want to really feel it. You know? Yeah. Shout out to that colonial officer who has George Zaydan's shoes right now because. Were the shoes fire at least or what? What the fuck? Like, I don't even know what they were. Were they nice? Were they Jordans or what were they? <laughs> I don't know. And we just laugh because we're like, you know, they, it is comical. There, there is comedy in this oppression. They find new ways to oppress us and to deprive us of our humanity. Like we can't just travel like regular people with our belongings, right? Hey, they steal souls every day, so. Yeah, what's a shoe when when you murder children? What's, what's the soul of a shoe? 
What? Speaking to the European Parliament members, I had this feeling that they made the UN seem like radical. Like the UN has made stronger statements than some of these so-called allies at the European Parliament were willing to make. At what point one of them said to us, you know, we'll get on board if the US gets on board. And it's like, bro, if the US gets on board, we're liberated. Like it's over. Like we don't need you to get on board at that point. It's already over. Like the apartheid state has fallen. So it just shows also how much of a lack of courage there is still in these spaces on this issue. And it shows how much more we really need to keep pushing on this. You know, there are so many spaces now where the conversation about Palestine is moving in the right direction and we are reclaiming our narrative. We are orienting it from the perspective of our lived experiences. This is what happened to us. Everything that they're telling you is a lie because they're covering up what they're doing to us. And this is what this is what we're experiencing. I'll go, hey. I'll talk about Palestine anywhere and 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 anytime, just not with the Zionists, because I don't believe in that. But I will talk to anybody who's willing to listen about our lived experiences. Hey, and what were the offices of the PA like over there? I bet they were bustling <laughs> and overflowing with advocacy. Look, we had an ally tell us real talk that the offices of the PA in the, in Brussels are tumbleweed and collecting dust. They're just not there. They're just not. They're just not. How can you expect to get people on board if you don't show up? Did the Israelis murder them too? <laughs> Look, I don't know. I mean, I we all know that our liberation is not going to come from anything related to the PA, right? Every, every Palestinian knows that and agrees on that point. So I don't pay too much mind to what they're doing in any event. Because but what they're, they're not doing is showing up and advocating in Brussels. And what the Zionists are doing is exactly that. So, yeah. Uh, what did they say about the Zionist lobbies? They said that they were at every meeting, that they were stopping people in hallways, that they were pulling up next to policymakers at uh, restaurant bars, right? If somebody was eating alone, they would, oh, oh, hey, look who you are. Oh, this is who I am. Oh, can I talk to you about Israel? They're, they're stalking people. It doesn't surprise me, right? Because the lobby is active. And that's just a fact. They have, they're very active. They're everywhere. They make these relationships. And that is how they advance their unjust cause. They have a cause and they're defending it by showing up. Our cause is just, but the reality is, is that you have people from civil society who are doing the work of our so-called elected representatives who are completely sabotaging our cause. We can see an example of that with the CUNY law commencement speech. Yeah. Like, it's not, it's you, not like she's getting support from the PA. That's like, we stand yeah. with her. You know what I mean? Like they're not issuing like letters of support, in, you know, in, in in the defense of Palestinian activists from the grassroots or their allies. But no, just even like the mention of advocacy for Palestine will trigger such a reaction that the mayor of the city speaks about it, that there's a like weapons superpower that is stalking the activities of someone who just graduated law school. There's a tremendous power imbalance between a law student and a nuclear power. You know, sounds like a David and Goliath type of situation. I don't know what to make of it, except that so many of the conversations went exactly how I thought they would. And there were a couple that were really pleasantly surprising. In the Belgian parliament, we were walking uh, through the halls and on one of the doors, we could actually see the map of the disappearing land of Palestine. And that, I found that really cool to, to be able to see that in a place like that, right? 
so that was, you know, things like that, where it's like, no, 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 the reality is being advocated and presented. And we may be in a minority in these spaces, but there are still people, good people that are doing that work. And so that was reassuring. Every so often, one of the massacres and murders of a Palestinian like really hits me very hard. And I feel like hits the community extra hard, not because every person's life is not equally valuable. They, of course they all are, but because some of the stories are just so heartbreaking. And I think Muhammad Tamimi is exactly that. He's two years old. He was on his way to visit family with his father and they were sitting in a parked car outside of their home in Nabi Saleh in the occupied West Bank, sitting in their car in their driveway in front of their house. And the Israeli occupation shot both of them and they ended up shooting Muhammad, who is two years old, in the head. He spent several days in critical condition before passing away today. And so basically what you have is the apartheid state, which has committed a murder of a two-year-old child who was sitting in his car in front of his house. We know as Palestinians that there's not going to be accountability for this because there never is when Israel kills us or our children. Spokesperson for the Defense for Children International Palestine was quoted as saying that unlawful killings of Palestinian children have become the norm as Israeli forces become increasingly empowered to use intentional lethal force in situations that are not justified. This is a war crime with no consequence. We have to keep in mind that Mohammed is the 27th Palestinian child who was killed by the apartheid state in the first half of this year. He's also the 150th Palestinian to be killed this year overall by the apartheid state. And in each and every one of these cases, the story is always the same. Israel first denies it. Then they come back and say, oh, actually, we were around. Oh, actually, we shot at them, but it, but it wasn't us that hit them. Oh, actually, we shot at them and we hit them, but they deserved it. Oh, actually, they weren't doing anything. So it was just a mistake. You know, it goes through this cycle of changing talking points until it gets to a point that the story is old and the public has moved on. But if you are Muhammad Tamimi's mother or his father who was with him, or if you're any one of his other family members, or if you're a Palestinian who's watching this thinking of your own children, or if you're just a human being with a heart and a moral compass and a sense of accountability to your fellow brothers and sisters on this planet, you're going to look at a situation like that of a two-year-old boy who get who gets in the car with his father to go visit family, who was probably excited to go see whatever family he was visiting, who is filled with wonder and excitement and joy because he's a young child, but also trauma because he lives under occupation daily and whose parents have probably tried to shield him from the trauma and the reality of occupation. It reminds me of Ru'at, who told us that her, you know, she had a happy childhood, but then she realized that there were things that weren't normal. And, and, and that, you know, when she had to walk across the street with a sniper pointing at her and she was shaking and her hands were hurting because they were stretched above her. And like that image is etched into my mind because she said, I had a happy childhood, but then I realized things weren't normal. When we were in Brussels, Adnan was talking about how yeah, he too had a happy childhood, but then he realized that, you know, things weren't normal because of his early encounters with occupation soldiers pointing their guns at him and not knowing if they're going to pull the trigger. And then also knowing that it doesn't really matter if they do, because your death will just be another death, another Palestinian death. This story hurts a lot. 
and my heart goes out to Muhammad's family. I saw images of him and video of him in the hospital bed and he's so small and he takes up like no space in the hospital bed. He was hooked up to all these machines and he was shot in the head. And so just like take a moment to think about how that's not an accident and what kind of a person it would take to shoot, to knowingly shoot a two-year-old in the head who's in his car because that's not an accident. That's intentional. That doesn't happen by accident, right? And then know that like that person is a representative of a state which gets $4 billion of taxpayer money every year. And that our politicians are so happy and quick to defend and to cover up and to lie about what that state does to people. Photojournalist Bilal Tamimi was directly shot at by Israeli forces, despite identifying himself as a journalist to the occupation forces. This happened following the shooting of two-year-old toddler, Mohammed Tamimi. Nico Pellet, also Padalam, tweeted that Bilal Tamimi was amongst those who were injured, and he was shot in the hand while he was trying to film what the Israeli soldiers were doing. Miko wrote, this was close range. They knew what they were doing when they shot a baby. Miko posted photos on his Twitter of Bilal Tamimi after leaving the hospital with his arm in a cast and asked what could justify this level of brutality. What type of advocacy do you think that they would recommend doing in that situation? What type of outreach would be helpful, do you think? And some of like the Zionist bot responses to Miko's post. They'll say things like, does he really think that Israel would aim and shoot at a two-year-old? It's like, yeah, because they do. And it's this situation where it's like they commit these extremely heinous crimes, but then their supporters engage in this rhetorical device of being like, you can't possibly believe that they would do that because that is so heinous. And so if you believe that they do that, then that says something about you. So then the crime gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And if you try to shed light on what they have done, then they get further and further and further from accountability. Exactly. It's not even possible. The thing that you're stating, which is a verified fact, is not even a possibility. And I have been paid to leave this comment. It's like your attempt to shed light on the situation gets turned around and then weaponized against you. You can't possibly believe that Israel would do that. This journalist was attempting to film the murder of this two-year-old by the occupation, and he was shot in the hand by the occupation. So who are you going to believe? The people who were there and who saw everything and who filmed it? Or the Zionist bot who was paid by the apartheid state's propaganda arm to get in our replies and without a shred of evidence just say can't possibly be true thank you all so much for listening find our full episodes and sources at www.palestinepod.com follow us on instagram at the palestine pod send us an email at palestinepod at gmail.com and look for us on patreon www.patreon.com slash palestine pod that's been another episode of the pod thank you all so much for listening have a great day